really only three chapters left in Acts, 27, 28, and 29. Acts chapter 29 is today, okay? Acts chapter 29 is today, and we actually will look at Acts chapter 29 in a few weeks, okay? Acts chapter 27 is actually in the Bible, okay? Uh, So we will start there today, and it is a long chapter, and we're going to cover the entire chapter, so I will not ask you to stand today while I read it. Well, let's pray before I read the word. Lord, come upon us with the power of your Holy Spirit that we might have understanding, that our eyes and minds and hearts would be open to your word, that it would fill us and dwell within us richly, that we might live in accordance with it, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Acts chapter 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in an Adormitian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, uh, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. And the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. And from there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and and he put us aboard it. And when we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off Snidus, since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmony. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a certain place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lacia. And when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be attended with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. And the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached the decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had gained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close inshore. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Euroquila. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. And running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. And after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Syrtis, they let down the sea anchor and so let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. And when they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, "'Men!' 
I told you so. No, it says you should have followed my advice, basically the same thing, and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. And yet now I urge you to keep your courage, for there shall be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And a little further on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. And fearing that they might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. And as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea, on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men remain on the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. When the soldiers cut the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation. For not a hair from the head of any of you shall perish. And having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. And all of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. And all of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. And when day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a certain bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could." And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind, they were heading for the beaches. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow struck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, that none of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim jump, should jump overboard first to get to the land, and the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And thus it happened that they all were brought safely to land. This is God's inspired word for us today. Now we have to ask the question, much like we did concerning the repeated um, uh, recordings and, and the minutia that we found of all of Paul's defenses before the, the Jewish uh, 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 leaders and the civil authorities. Why did it go on again and again? Why did we see it more than once? I mean, he said it, the same thing basically before three or four groups, uh, but we, everyone was in court, recorded even to the minutia of it. Why is it in Scripture, which is, is so often has an economy of words, an economy of words in Scripture. In some of the greatest, most important times in the history uh, of the world, and in, in, in the example in the birth of Christ, it doesn't go on to explain things. It simply states it as a fact. And here we have an entire chapter 
devoted to Paul's shipwreck. Why would we have an entire chapter devoted to the minutia of where they sailed, how the wind was blowing, and where they ended up? Well, it's not so much an entire chapter devoted to a shipwreck as it is an entire chapter devoted to the providence and the sovereign hand of God protecting them along the way. You'll see that the Lord says this is going to happen. He doesn't say how it is going to happen. He doesn't say how long it's going to take or what all the things in between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise will be. He just says, here's my promise to you. Live with it. Be confident in it. Now watch me work even in the midst of a storm such as this. Now I have never been at sea during a storm. I have a good friend in Wilmington, North Carolina, who's, who's spent well over 50 years fishing off the coast. And one day he and some friends went out in a 50-foot powerboat, fishing boat. And when they saw the weather report in the morning, the weather report said seas 3 to 5 feet. It was actually a misprint. Seas were 13 to 15 feet. Okay? Now understand, this is a 50-foot sailboat uh, with well over 400 horsepower of engines there with state-of-the-art navigational uh, electronics and the boat is made of uh, the, the unsinkable stuff. Okay, You're supposed to be able to chop it in half with a chainsaw and both halves will float. It's that, that kind of boat. He said, I did not think we would survive. He said, it is frightening to be in the trough that is between the waves when all you do, you look out here and you see this wall of water and you look out here and you see this wall of water and you think that you're never going to survive. Uh, the, the refrigerator down, down in, the, the, uh, in, in the downstairs of the boat, I didn't tell you how much I know, the, the refrigerator had broken loose and every, with every you know, toss it was flying around and nobody was going to go down there and try to hook it up. He said it was terrible and we spent four hours in that. Now, I, I said, well, uh, you know, I was really working him. I said, well, how much did you eat during those four hours? It wasn't how much we ate. It was how much came up during those four hours, okay? Now, I read, I, I read uh, a, a, a history of uh, somebody who was, who was on an aircraft carrier in World War II, and they were in the North Atlantic, and they were ferrying planes over to Europe, and they got caught in one of those storms in the North Atlantic. Now, on an aircraft carrier, which is much higher than the 50-foot fishing boat, he recounted the same types of things, of being in the middle of a trough and seeing a wall of water higher than the boat on either side. And you would go down, and you would go up, and you would go down. And some of you are thinking, i got to have my drama me now, just from the description. Paul is on a wooden, single-masted sailing ship for over 14 days in weather like that. Now, just think about that. I want you to get an idea. This is not a four-hour storm. This is not Gilligan's Island type of thing. This is 14 days in a leaky sailboat, holds 276 people and a load of wheat, and everybody has lost hope. Okay? And Paul is here giving directions on what they should do. Okay? Now you can imagine why they don't, they discount what Paul says. He's a, uh, he's just a preacher, an old Pharisee that's, that's, uh, come to this new uh, cult called the Way. Uh, so we're not going to believe him when it comes to sailing. But, Sure enough, he was right. He was right. So against 
the helplessness of man on the Adriatic Sea here stands the sovereign hand of protection of God. Because he has said, this is the plan, this is what will happen. This is the plan, and this is what will happen. That's who God is. The Lord has already testified that Paul will get to Rome back in chapter 23. He makes it clear, I've got plans for you. You are going off to Rome. Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, so also must you witness in Rome. And the angel repeats this to Paul in the midst of the storm. It is very clear, Paul, you're going to Rome. But part of Paul's brain remembers this. The other part of Paul's brain thinks, we've been on this boat for almost two weeks. Nobody's eaten. We can't see anything but water. I think we're going to die. They have lost hope. Okay. So Paul starts out this trip as a prisoner, and he gets some good treatment. We saw that in just the opening verses. But he ends up at the end of the chapter basically the captain, telling people what to do and what will happen. Now, we understand it's the captain of the Titanic, basically, but he is the captain. He's telling people where we're going to go, we're all going to be saved, don't worry about it. Now, Rome has no fleet, so to speak, for this kind of activity, for transporting goods and soldiers. They would come and, and in a sense, lease ships or find ships, as we see in this uh, narrative, that are going where they want to go, and they would get on there, and off they would go. So ships of the sort that are mentioned here uh, in, in, these, in these passages uh, are, are kind of ungainly ships, uh, they're big and they're clumsy and heavy. They're good for hauling a lot of cargo, but they're only good for sailing with the wind. Okay? Now, my sailing experience in a, an actual boat with no motor uh, was one afternoon in North Carolina, and we were in the uh, waterway, the, the intercoastal waterway. And my friend, who was a pastor in Wilmington, had a sailboat, and it was called Discipleship. So if anybody called, the secretary said, he's out on Discipleship. Um, <laughs> So, so there we were. <laughs> yeah, this sneaky, sneaky guy. So there we are, and, and we're on the intercoastal waterway, and the problem is the tide is running out, and the wind is blowing against us. So we spent two and a half hours tacking back and forth across the intercoastal waterway, and we didn't actually go anywhere. We were in front of one house, and I marked our progress by the, the location of this house, and it never really changed. Okay, there it was. And finally we gave up and we just turned it around and went down and uh, made it that way. So I, I, I'm, not a good, I'm not a good sailor, but I do understand certain of the principles. And the ships that they were in had a single mast and were only good with going with the wind. They could not tack. Okay, they could not go back and forth and, and, and against the wind or as soon as the winds were contrary, the ships were in trouble. They just were not going to make any progress. And let me tell you, the winds were contrary here. Okay, the ship gets its heading uh, from Caesarea up towards the coast of Sidon. Now, now just as an aside, it's very detailed here. Very, very detailed for a purpose. And you'll see that purpose in just a moment. So they take the first ship, they get off that ship, they get on another ship, and that's a wheat-bearing ship. It's a cargo ship that is heading towards Rome. And when they meet with the, the prevailing winds, they're driven south to the side of Crete. Now, if we look at the uh, ancient uh, 
shipping annals and, and, and the, the documents from the day that we can find. Sailing on this part of the Mediterranean after September 14th was questionable at best. After mid-November, nobody sailed. If you remember at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul says, come to me before winter. Okay, come to me before winter. Why? Because nobody can go in the direction, in this direction, in the winter because the winds are blowing this way and you want to go that way. So you just can't do it. So Luke tells us it's, it's probably mid-October because he said it's after the feast. That would be the, the feast of the Day of Atonement here. And that would be fall in the end of September or the beginning of October, depending upon the year. Uh, now, Paul is familiar with the sea, the Mediterranean Sea in particular. Remember from 2 Corinthians, he has been shipwrecked three times already. So he knows what it's like to be in a storm. He knows what it's like to hit the ground and, and uh, to spend time uh, thinking that you're going to die. So he encourages them to stay at a place called Fair Havens. Okay, Fair Havens. Uh, but nobody really wants to. The captain doesn't want to. Uh, the navigator, the centurion. Why? Fair Havens is no fun. Okay? It's not like Corinth. Remember the seaport of Corinth? That was a fun place. Okay? You could find anything you wanted there. Fair Havens was very boring and nobody wanted to spend the winter either on the boat in the harbor or in the harbor at Fair Havens. And Paul says it, it's full of danger to pick up and move. Look at verse 10 of chapter 27. Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be attended with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. This is not an inspired uh, revelation that Paul has had. This is simply common sense from his experiences being on the water. Okay, through three shipwrecks, as I said, and I don't think he is looking really forward to a fourth shipwreck. So he says, this is full of danger. Now, let's flip over to Matthew chapter 14. We're going to take a little side trip here and see something that, that I think the Lord has planned. The Lord told Paul that he would testify in Rome. He had not bothered to mention how he was going to get there, what dangers he was going to face along the way. This is that season of trusting the Lord. Okay, the Lord has made a promise. He doesn't give us an end time of when that will be fulfilled, but we are simply trust him in that intermediate time. Now we come to Matthew chapter 14 here uh, for a, a particular reason. Now in Matthew 14, uh, in, the previous, uh, uh, in the previous section, we have just had the feeding of the 5,000. Okay? Now go to verse 22. Or 21. We'll just get that. And there were about 5,000 men who ate, aside from the women and children. And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. Now that word is a definitive word. He made the disciples get into the boat. He commanded them all into the boat and onto the water to sail off. And go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, battered by waves, for the wind was contrary. 
Jesus sends his disciples out on a boat in the middle of the lake in which he knows the storm is coming. Why would he do this? Okay, why in the world would he send his disciples out to risk their lives on this boat when he himself didn't get in the boat? Well, you know the rest of the story. He comes walking out on the water. Okay? He comes out there. He made them get out there on the boat in the middle of the storm so he could demonstrate his power and authority. So they could learn from this event. Well, the same type of thing, I believe, is happening here in Paul's life. The Lord has said, you're going to Rome, and he orders it. So he goes through some of the most dangerous times in his life so that he might realize God's sovereign hand of protection and care in his life. Back to Acts chapter 27. He says, Paul, you're going to Rome. Now trust me in the intervening times, in the intervening days. Now, you can't really blame the centurion for not believing the prisoner and trusting the captain uh, that, no, we need to go and we need to head off. We think we can make it down to Phoenix, which was a harbor. Now, this is kind of a tease because the winds come up and it seems like the winds are good, so they sail out. But what happens is they get out in the open water, the winds become contrary, and they're in for a big trouble. Now, look at verse 15. Of 27. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. There was no hope here as far as affecting the wind. They couldn't turn on the motor, they couldn't tack, they couldn't do anything. Wherever the wind drove them, that is where they went. Now, it's interesting that that same word is used in Second Peter chapter 1 at the end for how the Lord drove along the word of God in the hearts of the disciples. And, and, and Peter is writing, and he's writing about how the Holy Spirit drove them along to write down the things that he wanted. Okay, so it's not like um, they had they, they were just uh, putzing around. It was the Holy Spirit moving them to write certain things for those who in their day were going to read them. Those a thousand years later were going to read them, and two thousand years later, if the Lord doesn't return, it'll be three thousand years. These things are here because the Lord drove them along to write that word. In the same sense as the wind is driving this ship. Now. As I said, my sailing uh, is limited, so I went and did a little bit of research. Verse 17, and after they had hoisted it up, they used the supporting cables in undergirding the ship. I didn't know what that meant. Uh, What that means is in a single-masted vessel of this size, when the weather kicks up and the storms are great, it appears that the, the stresses are focused mainly in one spot on this ship around where the sail is, around where the mast is. So what they did is they took the ropes and they frapped the ship. Frapped the ship is taking the ropes and wrapping the ship up, basically, running the ropes underneath it and then winching them tight to hold the planks together of the ship. Because the stresses were so great, they were afraid the ship would simply come apart and splinter. So they are frapping the ship, tying it together in the midst of this storm. Uh, And then we get to uh, jump down to verse 20. 
or verse 19, they've thrown the tackle overboard. Whatever they don't need, they're getting rid of, trying to lighten the ship. In verse 20, and since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then, from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Now remember, the Lord had said, Paul, you're going to Rome, and here they're wrestling with any hope at all. Here's the struggle we have between the promises of the Lord and the issues of our immediate context. So often in our immediate context, we think, uh, I've lost hope. Okay, I'm just going to pull the blanket over today over my head. I'm going to stay in bed because there's no sense in getting out. But yet the promises of the Lord override our immediate context. He wants to get us through the day some days, and that's all we have to focus on so that we can get to the fulfillment of his promises. Now, God caused the boat in this storm to drift 476 miles to a small island from Cotta to Malta, another speck in the sea. Now, how do we know this in particular? Well, there was a Scottish sailor named James Smith, and he went and did all of this study on this chapter to see how this happened. And he charted the drift and charted the soundings and everything and found out exactly where they landed. And they came to a place called what we call St. Paul's Bay on Malta. And it's covered by rocks on one side. So about it, it would have taken them about 14 days to drift in the storm this far. And this is where they landed. Okay. Now, they say they lost all hope. I think this is exactly where God wanted them to be, without any hope. No hope in themselves, no hope in their ship, no hope that they could be saved in any fashion. And this is when the Lord shows himself. This is when he communicates to Paul in this dream, and Paul says, everybody's going to survive. We're going to lose the ship, we're going to lose the cargo, but everybody will survive. Now, how is that possible? Here you have a ship that is ready to fall apart. You're in the midst of the storm. Most of them haven't eaten anything of substance for 14 days. But what also, what does that tell you that Paul has been doing during this time? He's praying, okay? He is praying. So the Lord announces his presence in the midst of their darkest times and says, you all will survive. Now, remember the hymn, have you trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? You should never be discouraged. What do you do? Take it to take it to the Lord in prayer. Okay. The author of those words, name was Joseph Scriven. And he didn't write those words when life was good. He didn't write those words when things when he was on top of the world. He wrote those words after the death of his second fiance. Uh, his first fiance died uh, the day before he was to be married. She drowned in, a, in an accident. So the man was brokenhearted, and he, he went and he traveled and ended up in Canada and resettled. And he was about to get married again, and his fiancée died just a week before the wedding because of pneumonia. So it was after those instances in his life that he wrote this hymn that has become so important. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? You should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Apparently, in his life, as in here in Paul, God is announcing his presence in the darkest and the most difficult of times. 
So the angel promises everybody's going to survive. Look at verse 30. Now, as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said, "Uh uh-uh, everybody has to stay on the ship so everybody will be saved. If these guys get off, now part of this may have been their seaman's knowledge, but the other part was the promise had already come. Everybody will be saved. Everybody will be saved. Now, imagine the odds of this. That you're going to lose, you're going to beach the ship on a reef of some sort. The waves are going to come and begin to batter the back of the ship and then it's going to be stuck there so it's, the waves are eventually going to tear apart the ship. You're going to lose all the cargo. You're going to lose the ship. You're going to be beached on a, on, on a, on a beach but everybody will survive. What are the odds of that? We just can't figure that. Okay, those things don't happen. Those things don't come about unless God intervenes. So one of the things that we learn here is that there is a great benefit for non-believers by hanging around with believers. And it's not just the opportunity they have to hear the gospel. The Lord will sometimes protect believers and guide them and keep them safe. And non-believers kind of get free ride onto that to see the Lord at work. Now, is there any instances of that? There are plenty of instances throughout Scripture. Uh, Genesis 18. Here you have Abraham comes up and God says, I'm going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. And what's Abraham say? What if you find 50 righteous men? The Lord says, okay, I'll, I'll save it for 50. So Abraham pushes his, his luck. So what if you find 40 righteous men? And God says, okay, I'll, for 40 righteous men, I'll save the city. How about 30? Okay, oh, and it goes back and forth. And they get down to 10. He says, if I can find 10 righteous men, I will save the whole city. He couldn't find 10 righteous men, okay, and the cities were destroyed. We also see this in Genesis 30. Laban says to Jacob, remember, Laban was his father-in-law. Jacob had worked seven years to get a wife. He got the wrong wife. He worked seven more years, got the right wife. And Laban says to him, for I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Blessed me because of you. Chapter 39, Joseph goes off to Egypt, caught in slavery. There he is. And what happens to the land of Egypt? Potiphar's house, the land of Egypt as a whole. All those things are blessed because of Joseph's presence. Even the keeper of the prison was blessed because of Joseph's presence. So these people in the ship didn't understand how fortunate they were simply to have Paul there. Paul and Luke and Aristarchus. Now the other point I think I want to... I want to point out here from this is that God is under no obligation to tell us anything. God is under no obligation to say, well, yes, there's where I want you to go, but here's how I'm going to get you there. Okay, he is under no obligation to fill in the blanks for us. That is what I'm just going to call the trusting time. That is the time in our lives where we have to simply say, Lord, you have made these promises to me. You have made these promises from your word and for believers, and I don't know what you're going to do or how you're going to get us there, but I will simply trust you. Now, there is an excitement to that. There is also a terror to that. Okay? If you like things laid out and like to know what's going to come next, there's the terror. If you're a person that trusts the Lord easily, then there is that excitement. What will he do to get me there? Remember, 
Samuel came to Jesse's house. He anointed David. He was the one in the fields. It was over five years before David actually became king at Hebron. What happened during those five years? Gee, he killed Goliath. Saul tried to kill him. Saul tried to kill him. Saul tried to kill him. And again and again. But he's been promised to be king. He's the anointed one. God didn't tell him what it was going to take to get him there. He said, you're going to have to trust me to fulfill my word and my promise for you. Paul knew he was going to Rome. He didn't know how he was going to get there. He didn't know how bumpy the road was going to be. But he was promised by our Heavenly Father. So maybe you're in a time of waiting. Maybe the Lord has you here. I want you to learn how to trust me. Okay? Even if Saul's trying to kill you, I want you to learn how to trust me. For without it, without your faithfulness during this time, you won't be ready for what I have for you and what I have promised you. So let's pray. Lord, there are so many things in this chapter, so many details that you have given to us for a purpose. We see how your providential and sovereign hand has guided Paul through, through these many days. And, and we've seen this in these last several chapters. We see it here again. This is a time of Paul trusting you. A time when the hope of men and their own abilities were gone. That is when you showed yourself and made your promises real. And all these people were, were saved. They survived the shipwreck against all odds. Lord, what is it, is it in our lives? Is this a time of trusting where we're in between? We're simply waiting to see how you will fulfill the things that you have placed upon our hearts. And in that in-between time, you are molding us and shaping us, getting us ready for what you have. Lord, we pray that in the midst of that, we are patient. We are attentive to what you're teaching us. And that the faith you have planted within our hearts would grow and mature, that we'll be ready for what you have. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.